This is episode number four of the Individual One podcast. I'm your host, John Ziegler. We're broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him, at least not as a conservative, because the liberal mainstream media has lost their minds completely. They cannot be objective about him, and the conservative, as I refer to them now, state-run media, have been so compromised and completely co-opted that they can't either. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast are most definitely not co-opted. Hope you have enjoyed the first three episodes of the Individual One Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review the show, share it via social media. Uh, we also already have over 2,000 Twitter followers at the Twitter handle for this podcast, which is Individual One Pod. That's individual, the number one pod. So make sure you, if you are a Twitter user, uh, make sure you uh, follow us. So follow me there at Zygmunt Freud. And that's really, uh, at this point, the best place to get all your information about the podcast. Uh, you can get the, the podcast via various uh, platforms, but iTunes is the most prominent. And if you do use iTunes, again, please subscribe to the show. Now, much of what I want to discuss today in episode number four deals with how we got that media divide, which makes a podcast like this necessary, and specifically how the conservative media, of which I have been a pretty significant part for many, many years, became so unbelievably invested in Trump not being seen so negatively. And that's Correct. the re Yeah, that's the reality of this. I mean, the, the conservative media is invested in Trump in a way that is dangerous and dis completely prevents them from really telling the truth about what's actually going on. Correct. Now, be before we get into that, I want to talk about some of the news of the day. Uh, we're going to be doing this podcast, it looks like, twice a week, usually on Wednesdays and Sundays here in the Los Angeles area. And that will uh, allow us to really focus on what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as getting into some of the deeper and maybe more esoteric elements of this uh, Trump phenomenon that has so captivated the United States and uh, others around the world. The big news uh, today is that it appears as if Trump is willing to sign a budget deal to avoid another, another government shutdown. Now, you may recall that it was only a couple weeks ago that the United States government ended uh, the longest shutdown in history with no deal being made. And the deal was really centered around whether or not Donald Trump was finally going to get the wall that he promised continually during the 2016 election, the wall on our southern border, uh, in case you were hiding under a rock for about a year, uh, Donald Trump consistently, constantly, at virtually every rally. In fact, he even said that when the, his uh, rally crowd was getting bored, he would play the hits. And the biggest hit was, where's the wall? Give us a wall. We're going to build that wall. It's going to be a big, beautiful, giant wall. And Mexico is going to pay for it, by the way. Well, uh, he did not get that wall during the uh, previous shutdown negotiation. They basically punted. And now we're heading against the, the deadline for a second time. And there is a deal, at least in principle, that still does not include the wall. And in fact, <laughs> it's such a crappy deal from Trump's perspective that uh, even some of his 
most ardent supporters within Colt 45 are more than agitated about this, including Sean Hannity and, of course, Ann Coulter, two of his biggest supporters who are anti-illegal immigration. But the bottom line is it appears as if Trump is going to accept less money, about $1.3 or $1.4 billion for some sort of fencing on the southern border, than was offered the last time during the previous shutdown negotiation. So he shuts down the government for over a month over not wanting to accept $1.6 billion, and now he's accepting a little over $1.3 billion. That's not winning. <laughs> that's not the sign of a great negotiator. Correct. That, that's, that is somebody who uh, is a fraud when it comes to negotiation. He's a guy who, and I've always said that the number one presumption you should make about anything that Donald Trump says is the more strongly he says it, the more likely it's a lie. That's the way he works. He, he understands that people are hesitant to call people liars. And then if you're really emphatic about something, people even become more hesitant to say that you're a liar. And they presume, well, he couldn't be lying about that. I mean, he says he's worth $10 billion, so he must be super rich. Maybe it's not really $10 billion, but he's still super rich. Well, no, maybe it's all big fraud. Maybe it's a big con. And similarly, regarding his negotiation skills and the whole art of the deal facade that he has created throughout his entire career, there, there is no evidence. There is no evidence whatsoever that, that Donald Trump is a great negotiator. And this wall situation is a perfect example of that. Now, it's not going to hurt him, though. That's the, the amazing thing of this. There, it, it, his base is not going to leave him over the fact that he has failed, at least so far, to come anywhere close to fulfilling his number one promise of a wall on the southern border. I love the poorly educated. That's his base. And, and Trump understands how to manipulate his base very well. As long as his base sees that he is fighting for them, as long as they see that he is disrupting the establishment, as long as they see he's doing everything or appears to be doing everything he can, although he's not, because let's be clear, he actually could have had the wall when the Republicans controlled the House of Representatives. He had a deal on the table for that and he turned it down. So then he waits until Republicans lose the House of Representatives. He has far less leverage. And now he's accepting basically nothing for, you know, a few miles of fencing. But as long as he's fighting, Are you not entertained? then he will continue to hold the base. And what he's also really good at understanding is that you don't shock people instantaneously by saying, oh, I lost. You know, <laughs> you don't just you just don't drop it all in one fell swoop. What you do is if you're going to lose you break it to your base very slowly, very slowly and over time. And you move the goalposts as you're going. And if they want to believe you, as the cult does with regard to Trump, they will because they're invested in you. So 
So what's kind of happened here is that over time, this wall that in 2016 was going to be big and beautiful and across the entire southern border and, oh, by the way, paid for by Mexico, is now just a few miles of fencing. But because it's happened over such a long period of time and the base has had such a, a, a long period of time in, in order to adjust their expectations and to brace for the fact that, guess what, uh, they're not really going to get what was promised, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Very few of any people, even if Trump does, in fact, is forced eventually to admit defeat, although he'll never admit defeat. He, he will never admit defeat. Correct. Because he doesn't have to. Because the conservative media, which I'll get to a little bit later on, won't force him to accept defeat. And then there's always the option that he's going to do something crazy, like uh, declare a national emergency or try to do this the back door through executive action all of which conservatives, principled conservatives, would have an utter fit over if this was ever tried by, for instance, Barack Obama to do something that he wanted. And it also creates enormously bad precedence for the future because, for instance, if there's a national emergency over the border, which you could have argued has been in existence for many decades, and here in Southern California we're well aware of that, but there's nothing new or different right now that would would mandate a national uh, emergency over this. But if this is a national emergency and it's used in a contrived fashion to create money for a wall, then once Democrats take over the White House, which inevitably they will, whether it's in 2020 or 2024, all they have to do is declare a national emergency over climate change and Katie bar the door, it's all over. Or a, a, a national emergency over gun use. And they can suspend the Second Amendment for all intents and purposes. So there's there's all sorts of bad precedents that will be will be uh, set here. But Trump doesn't care about precedents because <laughs> he only cares about today. He only cares about what's happening today, which is why he doesn't care about the deficit, which is now over twenty two trillion dollars, because that's not his his thing. By the time that bill comes due, he'll be gone, even if he gets reelected. He, he's, he's probably only going to be living for another ten years. Although if you if you listen to his uh, alleged physical results, he's going to be living forever because he's in, the, the, in such amazingly great shape. Of course, no one really believes that. I mean, just look at him. So so the reality here is we have this perfect storm where where Trump doesn't care about the future. He only cares about what's good for him. And so he's lost on the wall, but he'll never be forced to admit it. And his base is not going to leave him over it because, after all, he killed the Wicked Witch of the West. And that's Hillary Clinton. So he, he prevented the Wicked Witch of the West in the, in the conservative mind from being president. So for that, he gets enormous slack. He can do basically anything he wants. It doesn't matter that he doesn't fulfill his promises. And, and what I have, one of the funniest things I find in uh, conversing with uh, what I refer to as Colt 45, which I do far too often, especially on Twitter, is that they really think that he has done an amazing job of fulfilling his promises. They really do. I mean, he, he himself says that he deserves credit for this. Look, I hate to do it, but I will do it. I would give myself an A+. That's, that's President Trump. He gives himself an A plus if he doesn't say so for, for himself. I am doing a great job. That I can tell you, just in case you haven't noticed. So because he says it, the cult believes it. And, and so this notion that he's been keeping his promises is really quite amazing. Let's consider what his biggest promises were during the 2016 election. The wall. He ain't going to get the wall. By the way, it's important to point out, even if somehow 
he gets some money for the wall. By the time this will never be built in any substantial way because of all the legal restrictions and eminent domain and 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 logistical issues. This will never get built by the time he's out of office. And as soon as his his successor comes in, the first thing they're going to do is stop whatever progress has been made. So this is this is academic on its face. But he's he's not going to get the wall. He promised to end Obamacare. That's not going to happen. If anything, we're going to end up with single payer because of uh, Donald Trump, which is even you know it's basically Obamacare on steroids. Hillary has not been locked up, nor will she be. The swamp has not only not been drained; <laughs> it has been filled to capacity by uh, by Trump's own crime. And he promised so much winning we would be tired of it. Well, we just got through an election where the Republicans got crushed in the in the House of Representatives and may and may not win the House of Representatives again for a very, very long time. Because here in California, people don't understand the the mathematical deficit that Republicans will now face institutionally going forward because of all the Democrats that have now been elected in California makes it nearly impossible for Republicans to take back the House. You're starting the game at minus 40, basically, because of California. And there's no way to change that now because of the nature of California politics. I mean, so it was already bad here in California as a conservative, but now it's just a complete catastrophe. It's now a total wipeout. And you can't recover when California has has the most representatives in the entire country. That is, that's a deficit that's almost impossible to recover from. And largely, and that's not all Trump's fault, let's be clear. But he put the final nail in the coffin. And it would not be as bad if not for him. But none of these promises are going to be kept. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because of the personal investment that people have, including in the conservative media, for Donald Trump. Now, another piece of news that came out over the last 24 hours is that NBC has been reporting that the Senate Intelligence Committee, and they said that this occurred in a bipartisan fashion, the Senate Intelligence Committee has concluded and released a report that says that there is no proof of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia from the 2016 election. Now, this got quite a bit of news, and, you know, all the uh, Trump forces were were trumpeting this, literally and figuratively. In fact, the president of the United States, Trump himself today, tweeted about this and, and said that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, and he did this in all capital letters, which I thought pretty much ended all debate. I mean, you know, when the president is going to be willing to use capital letters in a tweet, it's hard to argue with that, right? I mean, that, I mean, whew, wow, you went to the capital letters. So it must be true. It must be true, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, correct. yeah, I, the, the reality is that, you know, I would like to believe, I would like to have a president who, if he went on Twitter and in capital letters said something wasn't true, we could go to the bank with that. <laughs> But we don't live in that world. In fact, using my Trump decoder ring, it's quite the opposite, because the more emphatically he says something, the more I go, hmm, there's a darn good chance that that's not actually true. And and because that's what history tells us. Now, to be clear, and I have written extensively about this, and in fact, ironically enough, I did an interview with an investigative reporter named Michael Isakoff, who wrote the book Russian Roulette which Trump ended up tweeting about three times a couple of months ago. 
because Isakoff and I have had at that time, and, and I, I believe we're pretty much still in the same boat, said that we don't believe collusion will ever be proven, and it's not for sure that it ever actually happened. Now, there's a whole lot of smoke. There's a whole lot of, of potential obstruction of justice, maybe perjury, maybe witness tampering, maybe jury tampering. There's a whole lot of potentially illegal stuff related to the investigation. But when you get to the, the core of it, is there ever going to be proof that Russia and the Trump campaign colluded? And I have, I have been doubtful about this almost for the, well, actually for the entire uh, saga. I have never stated to my memory or recollection, certainly not in a column, that I believe that there's going to be proof of direct full-on collusion. But that doesn't mean that that's the whole story. And by the way, that doesn't mean that there wasn't collusion. <laughs> that means that there's no proof of it. And that gets back to the heart of the NBC story. And it seems to me that what happened here, I don't know this. This is me reading the tea leaves. But, you know, the Senate is, is still a body that likes to believe in itself as it's the last bastion of of real gentlemen and ladies who can cross uh, uh, go across party lines and and they're the real elders and the and the people who really care about the country and they're there they're there they're the real adults okay they're the real adults that's how they like to think of themselves and what i think happened here is that mark warner the the, the head democrat on the committee got schnookered by the Republicans on the committee. I, I, it's my sense that he thought he was agreeing to something that then got manipulated either by the Republicans or weirdly maybe by NBC. Who knows? Because obviously NBC wanted a good story. But it feels to me like a Republican leaked to NBC that, aha, we have no proof of collusion. And the Democrats agree that there's no proof of collusion. And that what Warner thought he was agreeing to was pretty just bland and obvious. Okay, yeah, we don't have, and I'm being, uh, and I'm putting this in broad terms and, and paraphrasing here. We don't have an email. <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't even do email, which is a big part of this whole story. We don't have an email from Donald Trump to Vladimir Putin saying, "Hey, Vlad, uh, would you like to collude on the election?" and uh, and Putin coming back and saying, "Sure, sounds like a great idea, Donnie. Let's do it." I mean, there's there is no smoking gun email to like like that, nor would there ever be. And that's what Warner is now coming out saying today is, wait a minute, <laughs> I, I, I do not agree with the conclusions being made uh, by the Senate Intelligence Committee and the NBC report. And, and I really do believe this is essentially a preview. This is a, a dry run for what's going to happen if, if and when Mueller ever releases this final report. Because I, I'm still in the category of there's a lot of very shady things that went down. A lot of things that certainly look very suspicious. Uh, uh, there's a whole lot of smoke. And I've, I've related this, as I did with Michael Isikoff in that, uh, that interview that uh, Trump tweeted about and made a lot of news about a couple months ago. I've related this to a, a relationship, a romantic relationship, where there was a lot of flirting, there may have been um, you know, some heavy petting, uh, but was there actually uh, direct, intimate contact? Was there ever actually any hooking up? And, and I have theorized, and Isikoff seemed to like this uh, analogy, that, that in reality, 
the Trump people wanted to hook up with the Russian people more than the Russian people wanted to hook up with the Trump people. And when you think about it, that makes sense because the Russian people actually had way more to lose here. Because if this didn't work and Hillary's president and she finds out about it, which, of course, she would if it was that direct, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Meanwhile, Trump's is going back to regular business. And, and you know, I, I now firmly believe that the thing that we have found out that might be at the heart of this whole scandal, the thing that might be driving all the lying, is that it appears to me as if we now know, based upon the Michael Cohen pleadings and, the, uh, and, and Rudy Giuliani's own statements, the president's own attorney, that Donald Trump was trying to get a Trump Tower built in Moscow all the way through the entire 2016 election campaign. Not just the primaries, all the way to the end of the general election until he was elected. Correct. That's what the evidence currently indicates. Now, that is scandalous, and it is mind-blowing to me. It is, it is just, you know— it's just flat out ridiculous that this has not become a bigger story, that this has not, uh, for instance, made all of those who ran against Donald Trump in 2016, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, Governor John Kasich, uh, Senator Marco Rubio. I mean, they should be screaming bloody murder about what did and did not happen during that 2016 campaign, because had we known that this was occurring, that Donald Trump was using the Republican presidential nomination, essentially just to get a land deal done. That's what he was trying to do. He, he figured he was going to lose, so he, he leveraged, he was trying to leverage that position into a land deal that he's been trying to get done for decades and may have even used the penthouse as a, essentially a bribe for Vladimir Putin. That, to me, is the, the real heart of the scandal here as far as what Trump and the people around him might have been trying to protect. That's the dirty secret. And what's amazing is that dirty secret is out and no one seems to care. So there may not have been. It's in the classic case of, you know, it's always the cover up, not the actual crime. The actual crime here, well, I find it to be beyond scandalous and incredibly disturbing. Very few people seem to. Yeah, certainly not on the conservative side, even though, you know, had Hillary Clinton been accused of doing anything close to this, my gosh, people would be setting themselves on fire over it. But that's the, the nature of the hypocrisy that, which we now live in in this day and age. But, but the, re the reality is that might be big enough to cause all the lying. Now, maybe there's something else bigger we don't know about. I'm open-minded on that. But my sense is that what we saw with the Senate Intelligence Committee report and the NBC report about it is a dry run for Mueller in that you're going to be able to pick out whatever you want to believe. And that's kind of emblematic of where we are in this world. It's incredibly frustrating. No one ever gets the truth on anything because you can always cherry pick whatever you want to believe. There's always going to be a media outlet to tell you what you want to believe. The conservative media is going to say, see, no proof of collusion. You know, which, which which might effectively be the same as saying, see, no proof O.J. Simpson did any murders because there's no video of it. We don't have video of it where well, there was no witness that witnessed it. So therefore, it didn't happen. So there's the theoretical world, you know, and then there's the real world. You, you can always set the goalposts someplace where people can't reach them. And, and I've thought for a long time it's possible that Trump's smart enough to set those goalposts in a place where Mueller can't reach him. 
And that's why he keeps saying no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, although he's and sometimes he's backed off of that saying, well, you know, even Rudy Giuliani backed off of that and said, well, you know, parts of the campaign may have colluded with Russia. I'm not sure. And that, you know, that was just before Roger Stone got indicted and arrested. So and then, of course, there's also this canard that the collusion is not a crime. So you can always shift the goalposts. And I believe that's what's going to happen with Mueller. I, I think that Mueller is going to end up being a, not a big nothing because I think we're going to confirm a lot of things we think we believe. We might even learn a few new things that are important. But as far as shifting public opinion and the opinion of of those in power, I doubt it's going to have any impact at all because you're always and we are, we just saw it yesterday. You're always going to be able to pick and choose. The Senate Intelligence Committee will be able to say with a straight face, we found no evidence, uh, direct evidence, direct evidence being the key phrase here, of collusion. Well, there's direct evidence, and then there's a whole lot of circumstantial evidence where if you use your brain, you can come to a reasonable conclusion. And that's where the divide seems to be between Senator Burr and Senator Warner. And And it's interesting to me, in a weird way, in a weird way, and of course I'm, I'm a contrarian by nature, but in a weird way, the NBC story inches me a little bit closer to the idea that there probably was some collusion. And here's why. Because if the Senate Intelligence Committee really, really had concluded this, there wouldn't have been the shifty, underhanded way in which the story came out fooling Warner, and Warner wouldn't have gone to the wall, to the mat, today and said, wait a minute, uh, I have problems with this. If, 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 if that's really what Warner felt like, you know what, we need to get away from this whole collusion thing because it's just not going to turn out and we're going to look like idiots for having, uh, you know, put so many eggs in this basket. If he was really worried about this, he would have run away from the story. He would have been said, you know, um, you know, I stand by what uh, the Senate committee has come to in a bipartisan way. And uh, by the way, I need to go to lunch. That's what would have happened. But that's not what occurred. So if you read the tea, la- tea leaves here, and I'm pretty good at being able to read these tea leaves normally, I actually feel, uh, you know, I'm, I'm inching, it's, and I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't know what percentage I am, but it, may, it maybe inches me a, a percentage or two more towards the idea that there may have been direct collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, because if there wasn't, this is not the way this story would have come out, and it's not the way that it would have been reacted to. Now, I wrote a column uh, for media, which I do about uh, two uh, times a week. The easiest place to find my columns for media uh, is to go to freespeechbroadcasting.com, although I don't know that this one is up there as of yet. You can also just go to my Twitter feed, Zygmunt Freud, and it's uh, very easy to find my columns. But I wrote a column today about something that involves Trump and the, and the Republican Party, and this gets us into this issue of the media that, uh, and the conservative media, that no one's talking about. And, and I'm a big believer that oftentimes the biggest stories are those where things don't actually happen. Now, that sounds weird. What are you talking about, Zig? I mean, how can there be a story if nothing's happened? Well, in this situation, there's always been speculation that, well, somebody's got to run against Donald Trump. For the Republican nomination, right? I mean, come on. I mean, seriously. Uh, all this corruption, low approval ratings, he gets crushed in the, in the midterm elections in the House. He's not really a conservative. There's got to be somebody prominent willing to step up and say, I will 
run against uh, Donald Trump. And they're, they're not going to win in all likelihood unless, you know, Mueller comes with an absolute nuclear weapon or something and then the economy disintegrates, barring something like that. Uh, but, but there's still importance in standing up and, and on principle saying, hey, look, uh, you know, this is not who we are and at least testing him and at least forcing him from going too far to the left now that there's a Democratic House. So there's a whole series of potential benefits if the right person were to take on Donald Trump. Well, we've seen all of these Democrats now already announcing for the Democratic primaries in what uh, I'm referring to and others have referred to as the woke Olympics. I mean, these, these Democrats are going crazy. I mean, they are going off the deep end already trying to prove just how incredibly progressive, how many incredibly liberal they are, you know, the, the, uh, the Green New Deal, all, all sorts of uh, liberal insanity that's playing right into Trump's hands. But we've not heard anything, anything at all about a major Republican taking the dive against Trump. And while there's still time, I think we're quickly running out of time. And if this was going to happen... I believe that it already either would have happened or we would be hearing about it. And let's be clear, there's not that many potential suspects. I mean, Jeff Flake, the former senator from Arizona, already said no. Mitt Romney's not interested. Chris Christie basically already endorsed Trump. Uh, Marco Rubio doesn't have the balls. I'm sure he didn't even think about it, although I, I think he could have theoretically done a hell of a job relitigating the 2016 primary since he doesn't have to run for re-election until uh, another cycle in Florida. Uh, you know, Nikki Haley has too much of a future to destroy going after a Trump because she is one of the very few people that in the future, once Trump is gone, can appeal to both the Trump and the non-Trump elements of the party. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, who might be the only other person with the stature to go up against him, uh, you know, was playing golf and watching football all the time. So why would she bother to to destroy her life by going after Trump? I don't blame her, although I would have loved to have seen it. So there's there are very few potential uh, suspects here. John Kasich is, is now working for CNN. I guess he's still theoretically a possibility. But the, you're not hearing any of the, the murmurs that this is going to occur. And let's be clear, uh, you know, that's a, you know, every day is a missed opportunity for this potential person. If this person existed, they would be getting interviewed on a daily basis except on Fox News Channel. Of course, Fox News Channel would basically ban them. But on every other television network, they would be the only Republican voice against Trump. And that's a narrative the media would love, right? They would love to give a platform to a major Republican going up against Trump, if only because that creates more content for them next year. They, they would love at least the, the facade of a Republican primary fight. And so, so there's this great opportunity that's sitting there for somebody, and the fact that no one has taken it, and there's no even real rumors that anyone's going to take it, to me speaks volumes that it's not going to happen. And I uh, got a comment from Bill Crystal, the conservative commentator, uh, who has been basically recruiting somebody to try to, to take this dive against Trump, and he's still optimistic. He still thinks they have till summer. You can read that quote in my column. But there's another element of this issue, which is really important, that Democrats ought to be paying attention to. It's not just the, 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 the principle of, gee, it's un incredibly depressing that nobody is going to take on Trump in a Republican primary. 
it's that what that means for the general election. And I go through this column. There have been nine times in the modern history of the presidency. And I, I say modern. I start modern by 1968 and Lyndon Johnson. All right. So basically, we go back two generations. There have been nine times where a president of the United States could run, a sitting president could run for re-election and attempt, you know, and at least started to run for re-election. Nine times. Five of those times, there was no opposition in their own primary. Guess what happened in those five times? They won each and every time. Correct. There were four times in which there was at least some legitimate opposition in the primary. Guess what happened in those four times? They all lost. Correct. That's a hell of a correlation. That's nine for nine. So if Trump does not face a legitimate primary contender, Democrats should be really worried about that. Now, that, you know, I realize that a lot of the old rules have been broken by Trump. That's part of what he's all about. Uh, and, and, you know, that doesn't prove for 100 percent certitude that that's what the future is going to hold. But nine out of nine is, is an awfully strong correlation. And you defy that at your own peril, Democrats. And you, to me, I, I am very concerned that where Democrats are starting off this process, that we're, we're starting this process off in a way that is playing right into Donald Trump's hands. And you have a food fight of epic proportions on the left. Trump is sitting there able to pick off each of these contenders before they get real traction and uh, mocking them and, 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 and being able to define them in the way that he wants. And he's still going to have significant electoral college problems because he's got to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania again. And I don't think he does that against Joe Biden, but I'm not sure that Joe Biden, if he decides to run, can get through the woke Olympics. So th this story that I wrote today is important, both from the standpoint of the nature of the Republican Party and its future, as well as what it means for the general election. Now I want to get to part of why it is that no one wants to run against Donald Trump in a Republican primary. And that main reason is because they know the conservative media won't give them a fair shake. That's the reality of it. The reality is Fox News Channel is all in. They are state-run media. Talk radio is largely, if not totally, state-run media. So while you'll get lots of, of oxygen you know, on CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, and other places, that's not going to do any good in a Republican primary. In fact, it might actually do harm. It might actually make you more suspicious to the Republican base. That's the crazy world we're now living in. That's, that's what's happened now, folks. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? I mean, but that's what the Republican base voter now believes. If they see you on CNN or MSNBC, you are the enemy. <laughs> Think about how nuts that is. It has nothing to do with what you're saying. It has nothing to do with your background or your credibility. But that, that is how effective Donald Trump's whole fake news canard has been. And that's partially, by the way, the Mueller report isn't going to make a damn bit of difference. But that's another story for another day. The, the reality is that everybody knows 
that the conservative media is all in for Trump and they will destroy anybody that runs against him in a Republican primary. That's just the facts. Now, how do we get to this point? Because this this is crazy to me. I mean, this is, I'm somebody who has been part of the conservative media for most of my career in talk radio, as a commentator on television, as a documentary filmmaker. I was I was a card carrying member of the right wing conspiracy during the Clinton era. I was I was actually a writer, a researcher. Uh, a consultant on the on the Hillary Clinton movie that that was the basis of the famous Citizens United Supreme Court case. My first documentary film was an anti-Clinton film. My second documentary film was an anti-Barack Obama film, an anti-media film called Media Malpractice. It premiered on the Today Show in a very high-profile interview with Matt Lauer. So, so my my street cred as a conservative and within the right-wing media is as as good as anybody's. And during that experience, uh, I got a real education because, you know, when I was a young man, I'm no longer a young man, I'm 51. But when I was a young man and talk radio was really starting to get going with Rush Limbaugh and I was naive enough to actually think that, wow, this is where the truth is. Talk radio is where the truth is. You can't get the truth, really. On the the television networks, because at that time it was basically only a couple of networks, the, the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and maybe a couple of others. But you, you could really, you know, you talk radio was needed because there was a whole other side of the story that wasn't being told. And I thought, no, nah, I wasn't completely naive that, that that's the only place you could get the truth, or that was always the truth. But that I felt like there was an incredibly important need for conservative media to tell the other side that wasn't being told. And as that medium grew, you know, there, there were some really great things about it. Well, people have to remember at first, at first, conservative talk radio didn't just appeal to Republicans and hardcore Republicans. There were actually some Democrats that listened. But over time, and the same thing happened to Fox News Channel, over time, as it became more and more clear what the agenda was, Democrats started dropping off from listening to talk radio and watching Fox News Channel. Well, once your audience becomes of one mind, guess what you have to do? You have to be of that one mind. So you basically become a mouthpiece for the Republican Party because people naturally want to hear what they already believe. They want to have their beliefs reinforced. They want to feel good about what it is that they already want to believe. Well, over time, a couple of other things happened. Fragmentation occurred in the news media. There became an explosion of cable news outlets. Obviously, the Internet explodes, and now there's a bazillion different websites. So there's a whole lot of different places to get your information and get your opinion. Well, this causes enormous pressure on the business model of conservative media, of all media, but also on conservative media. And one of the things, if there was one thing that I learned in my time in the conservative media is that, and I don't know if this was the way it was at the very beginning, but certainly when I left and part of the reason why I left, it is a business. It is not a cause. In fact, it is a business that is pretending to be a cause. That's the brand. 
Oh, we're in to save America and tell the truth. But that's the business brand. It's a business, not a cause. And in fact, in 2011, I wrote a book proposal with a, a legitimate book agent, although I wasn't a celebrity, so it never got purchased, a book called A Business, Not a Cause, about the conservative media. And the premise of this book was that the conservative media was so, so invested in protecting what was left of its business model and, and was so much preferring to be on the defensive and attacking as opposed to being in charge and, uh, you know, and, and, and having to defend somebody who is, is uh, in actual office. In other words, it's so much more beneficial for conservative media for a Democrat to be in office than for a Republican that they were going to take a dive on Barack Obama in 2012 and help facilitate his election. Because I believe, and I, I have been quoted in books, and there's another book coming out about this, and I believe I've proven the case, that there were elements of the conservative media that took a dive on Barack Obama in 2008 because they knew he would be good for business. Matt Drudge of the Drudge Report being foremost among them. I'm not going to get into the details of that. I'll say that for another time because it's a fascinating story. But the reality is... The, maybe the greatest misconception about conservative media is that they actually want a Republican president. They don't want a Republican president. They don't want to be defending what's happening. They want to be attacking. Attack, attack, attack. That's what conservative media does best. That's the safer place to be in. And, and so I, I've come to this conclusion long before Trump was a serious contender for the Republican nomination. But I saw in 2012... The way that these crazy candidates, the Herman Cain's and the Michelle Bachman's and by the way, even Trump for 15 minutes, uh, that these people were taken far too seriously by the conservative media because uh, they actually didn't care about winning. I mean, Mitt Romney was the only guy that had a shot to beat Obama. He didn't do it. That doesn't mean he wasn't the guy with the best shot. But he was not the guy that titillated the conservative media base. They didn't like Romney because he didn't fight. They want someone who fights. And, you know, what conservative media loves is attacking the media, attacking illegal immigration, attacking political correctness, and not being a wimp. That's what conservative media is because that's what the listener wants. The, once the, the audience has now shrunk to the point where you're at the core of the core of the core of what is, frankly, nutty base. I mean, there is not all people, obviously, but a large portion of that of that core listenership are nuts. I know this because I've made went to numerous events and met these people. They're not all there. They're not stable people. But this these these people now have real power because that's the audience that the conservative media needs to placate. Well, when Trump comes along in 2015, who is he? He knows this. He knows how to manipulate this situation perfectly. He knows the news media needs content. He knows they're desperate for ratings because their business model was broken. He knows the conservative media loves the anti-PC thing, the anti-media thing, the anti-illegal immigration thing. They, they, they don't want a wimp. They want a fighter. They, he knows that most Republicans think that they couldn't beat Obama because Romney and McCain were wimps. By the way, they were wimps, but that's not necessarily why they lost. They might have lost even if they weren't wimps, but who knows? I don't know about that in retrospect. But the reality is Trump knows exactly the persona to create. 
And there's the added benefit for the conservative media in 2015 that they don't really think he's going to win. <laughs> this is all just a big lark. This is all just a way of creating compelling content and getting ratings during a slow period. No harm, no foul. We're just going to play with fire. There's no chance this fire is actually going to get out of control. That was what they thought. Correct. But then the fire did get out of control. Because, frankly, I'm not even sure that members of the conservative media understood their own listenership or viewership. I think that they even overestimated how or underestimated how crazy the core viewership or listenership is. So the big names, the people with the biggest audiences, they went all in right off the bat. They had no choice because when you have a huge audience, well, they did have a choice. I mean, I I have to say... I'm stunned that Rush Limbaugh, at this point of his career, would give a rat's ass about who's listening to him. He's got more money than he could possibly ever spend. Uh, He's got more fame than he's ever going to possibly need. Uh, He could be playing golf uh, every single day of his life. I mean, I I don't understand why he he decided that he needed to to sell out uh, in order for a few extra ratings points or to not be left behind. Uh, you know, when when other uh, conservative media figures uh, went in on the on the Trump bandwagon. But OK, in his mind, he had no real choice, because when you have a larger audience, all right, you have a lot more to protect. Right. So, so the bigger the audience, the more you have to protect it. You've got people working for you. What have you? So Sean Hannity goes all in. Fox News Channel goes all in. Matt Drudge goes all in. Now, there was some resistance among the second tier. People with smaller audiences with maybe not as much to lose. People like Glenn Beck, uh, Ben Shapiro, Mark Levin at first, uh, Eric Erickson, who just this week uh, has announced that he's endorsing Donald Trump for 2020 without even knowing who the Democratic candidate is, which is is just flat out, you know, as, as Charles Barkley would say. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, but but that's, that's where we are now because you have to get ahead. You have to pick your spot. This is all a business. It's not a cause. You're pretending to be uh, promoting a cause, but it's a business. You need to be able to protect your gig. And, and the gigs are very precarious now, again, because of that broken business model. Well, over time, you know, originally all those four guys I just mentioned and others were resistant to Trump. They tried to figure out some way to rationalize, well, I'm, I'm sort of de- uh, uh, defending Trump. I'm sort of attacking Trump. I'm not really all in on Trump. I'm not against Trump. I may be sort of never Trump. Uh, I mean, the, the reality is, you know, and, and Ben Shapiro has, has masterfully uh, created a business model out of this whole good Trump, bad Trump thing, which you know, I, I frankly think my daughter ought to sue him over. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? I mean, that, that's, that's really the essence here. So, so Shapiro took that and said, well, I'm going to call Trump out as good when he's good and bad when he's bad. Okay, fine, but there's still the overall assessment. Is he good or bad as a total? Is he pro or con for the country? And I have always been in the category of, in the long run, he's bad. Not, I mean, I've been to varying degrees of that, but that's always been the conclusion or the fear that I've had. In the long run, 5, 10, 15 years, this is going to be horrendous for conservatism and bad for the country and bad for the world for many reasons. Number one of which is he has completely devalued truth as currency. And this is something that you need to understand about 
conservative media or media in general. Forget about just conservative media. People have this misconception that when it comes to journalism or even opinion journalism or commentary, that truth is the coin of the realm. Truth is not the coin of the realm anymore. Popularity is the coin of the realm. And technology has played an enormous role in that because now we know exactly how popular or unpopular any particular story or opinion is thanks to Twitter and Facebook, overnight TV ratings, internet uh, 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 traffic results. We know within minutes, is a story popular or not? Is an opinion popular or not? It's not truth anymore. Often truth is highly unpopular, especially when it comes to Trump. So, so truth is not the coin of the realm. And I'm a, I'm a truth guy. And Trump has taken truth. If you think of the dollar, right? Imagine if Trump had taken the dollar and, and, and taken the value of a dollar from 100 cents down to 5 cents. Imagine if he had done that. Well, that's what he's done to the, to the value of a truth dollar. A truth dollar may not have been worth 100 cents when he started, but now it's worth about 5 cents. He's obliterated the truth. He's a pathological liar. He does not believe in truth. He does not think that truth even matters even a little bit. Correct. And so, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play, as far as I'm concerned? But there's a whole other series of other reasons why I think in the long run, for the country and for the and for the world, Trump is a bad thing and might end up being a very bad thing. We're, we've been incredibly lucky so far. There have been no major crises for the first two plus years of his presidency. If he has eight years, I don't know how in the world you get through eight years without a major crisis. But anyway, the point here is the second tier, and I know all of them. I've even, you know, I thought I was friends with Glenn Beck. I, I've been on his show many times. I, I find this particular clip from Beck uh, talking about me ironic in retrospect. Thank you for a conservative actually standing and 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 speaking for principles. Because I gave Beck enormous credit for being anti-Trump through the entire 2016 campaign and even in the early stages of his presidency. But then at some point uh, late last year, he just gave up. He, he literally put on a red hat. I did an interview uh, with him for my World According to Zig podcast, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Uh, that was like over an hour, uh, and it was fascinating. We've done a couple of very fascinating interviews together in both directions. And I had a, I had a lot of respect for him, and I understood his pressure more than anybody. I mean, he was under incredible pressure because of the unique uh, nature of his business model and the blaze and his radio and TV uh, network. And he had suffered enormously. So I have incredible sympathy for, ben, for Glenn Beck. But in my opinion, he has now gone too far in the pro-Trump direction. And it is clearly as a business decision, in my opinion. And interestingly, ever since he made that decision, he and I have had no contact. Now, I don't know if that's just coincidental or, or whether or not that's him having guilt and not want to having to deal with me because he knows I'm going to call him out on it. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit of both. But the, but the reality is that all of these guys are shifting pretty dramatically, Levin more dramatically than anybody else. And it's really pathetic because Mark Levin considers himself to be a constitutional conservative. And if, if Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton were doing any of the things that Trump had been doing in this realm of, of overstepping their authority, Levin's voice would get so high-pitched that even dogs couldn't possibly hear it. And that's a fact. That's a reality. All of these guys, anybody with a, a significant audience, has been forced now 
to pretend that Trump is something that he's not and to forgive all of his weaknesses under this this premise that somehow in the overall, in the big picture, he's good because he's not Hillary. Even if you make that argument in the sh- very short run, which I, I'm open to, I, I could disagree with it, and I think I could put some holes in it that are pretty significant. The world's not likely to end in the next couple of years. I, I'm look, I have two young children. I got a six-year-old and an almost two-year-old. I, I think the world's going to be around for a lot longer than a couple of years. And I'm concerned about where this is headed long term. And it's particularly bizarre that all these people consider themselves to be conservatives when if if one thing is for sure, Trump has driven a stake through the heart of most of conservatism, at least as traditionally defined, specifically fiscal conservatism. So the, the reality here is that the conservative media, to understand the Trump phenomenon, you need to understand what happened with the conservative media. And that it is a it is by and large a fraud that they are pretending to be something that they can no longer be because the business model is broken. That's the reality. And that's why this podcast is different and it's needed because our business model is totally different than any of theirs. And I'm completely different because I don't care. I don't care. I really don't care. I have hopefully enough money to survive the rest of my life and and be able to support my family. I'm not going to be rich. I get it. Not going to be famous. I get it. I don't care. I'm just here to tell you the truth. And that's the essence of what this podcast is really all about. Now, we're ending each podcast with um, with uh, the current rating, the current uh, Individual One podcast rating of two different things. The chances that Donald Trump will, will somehow not finish his first term in office and the chances that he will be, re- be reelected. Last week, the chances for him not finishing his first term, I put at 10 percent and the chances of him being reelected at 40 percent. For no particular reason other than just a gut feeling, I'm sh- very slightly shifting those to 9 percent chance that Donald Trump does not finish his first term in office for whatever reason, and a 41% chance that he gets reelected. How long he serves after that, who knows? Because, frankly, Trump as reelected president is going to be a completely different monster than uh, Trump as elected president still having to face the voters as a possibility. So that's something people need to keep in mind. Correct. So that'll do it for this edition, episode number four of the Individual One podcast. Our next podcast will be on Sunday. Please subscribe, rate, and review this program. Share it via social media. Make sure you check out the Twitter feed at Individual One Pod, my Twitter feed at Zygmunt Freud, and email me at John Z at Mediaite. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. This is the Individual One Podcast on the Global Story Network. My name is John Ziegler.